You all can be seated. If you have a copy of the Bible, you can turn it open to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to be in the middle of that chapter uh, here in just a few minutes. Um, I wanted to give you an update on one dimension of church life. I've been kind of waiting for a little while to do this um, because it's been kind of in development. But if you've been part of our church for a while, uh, you've known that we, uh, several months ago, had a, a young man, Marcos Navarro, who's been on staff for several years, who would typically lead music on Sundays, uh, moved off of paid staff. And we've been slowly trying to find, not that anyone could replace him, but find another staff member uh, who could take up that reign, uh, who could take up uh, that responsibility, uh, amongst some other things, but a responsibility to lead us in singing and lead musicians and leading us, so leading leaders. And uh, we've been talking to one man in particular. Some of you even got to meet him. He came a few months ago on a uh, Sunday, Saturday, Sunday. We didn't have him lead on a Sunday, but he spent some time with some of us, a man named Ben Shaw. Uh, he actually lives in England presently. That's where he grew up. That's where he resides and ministers even currently. Uh, but we started a process of slowly talking with him individually and to his church back home. And he talked to his family extensively and mentors. I uh, was not hasty at all. But uh, he increasingly felt confirmed in his desire to come and move across an ocean uh, to come and live here in northern Indiana. And there's a long backstory to that and why that's appealing even to a, a Brit like himself. Um, but he really wants to. And we increasingly as leaders and even hearing input of some of the members of the church felt increasingly a desire to have him come. And so in God's kindness, it seems like that is happening. Uh, there's still a few things that we're trying to do, as you can imagine, trying to have someone who's not an American citizen move into our country to, for employment purposes. There's certain kind of visa you have to apply for. So we've been working with an immigration attorney uh, where he's getting documents to her. We're getting documents to her. It's been very thorough, but it's good. Uh, but we've got all that into her now. And she's, this is uh, fodder for prayer for you. She is submitting that even this week, hopefully, a petition to, I don't know how it all works, but to the embassy or whoever the right people are there uh, in England uh, to get that formally jump-started of, of hopefully getting him approved for a visa. But with that process and then him trying to functionally move from there to here, it's probably going to still be a few more months, uh, even ideally uh, in optimal uh, setting and scenario for him to actually be here on the ground. Think more like Easter time than next month. Uh, but so I would encourage you to be praying for him. He is a dear, dear brother. Uh, some of you got to meet him and could testify to that. Uh, but he's excited to come here, but he loves where he is as well. And so it's kind of bittersweet for him to leave uh, there. There's much more I could tell you about him, but I wanted you to be encouraged by that, uh, that, that the Lord does seem to be providing a man to fill that role. But I also wanted to pause and just say thanks again uh, to the men and women who've been stepping up to serve in different ways on our worship team. Can we give a round of applause to all those brothers and sisters? It's not, I don't just show up and preach on Sundays. They don't just show up and sing and, and lead. There's a lot of thought that's put into selecting songs, practicing, preparing. And so I'm grateful for all the ways that they have stepped up in service and are continuing to uh, even for the, the next few months. And so I, I hope that that's an encouragement to you, but be praying for Ben. I'll be praying for God's favor in that process of getting that visa approved and even for the logistics of him being able uh, to come and move here. But uh, you will love him. Uh, we may even, if, if this is doable. We 
may even have him come for like a pre-trip, as long as it's kosher with the immigration people, uh, to lead us on a Sunday, start to scope out where to live, things like that. That will be within the next couple months. But uh, So you may even get to see him and hear his British accent, and he's like six foot six. So like you'll know him when you see him. If you see a tall guy with a British accent, actually, we do have a t- If you see a second tall guy with a British accent that you've never seen before, that... That is uh, Ben, but I'm grateful for God's kindness uh, to us in giving him. All right, hope that you have found Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, tomorrow in our nation is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It's a day that many people have off of work or some off of school. But uh, I am grateful for Martin Luther King Jr. and a lot that he did and said and helped be an impetus for in our country. And I've, I've read a lot of things, speeches that he gave, things that he wrote, and there's much that... that could be learned from even the things that he said and communicated. But I wanted to start this morning, and you'll see how this flows into the text and the the subject this morning. I wanted to to start with a short quote from something that he said at a speech when he was receiving an honorary doctorate uh, from a university in civil law. And he said this. He said, It may be true that morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heart less. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, and then this, I think he says with the tongue and cheek, he says, but it can restrain him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important also. That's understatement if I've ever seen it. Um, but the point that I want to draw out amongst others that could be said from that quote is, he knew something intuitively and was articulating it that I think all of us know in our own heart, in our own experience, that laws don't actually change hearts. Right? That, that just putting a code in place and putting rules and then penalties for those things don't actually change people. They have a place. They, they serve a good role in a society or in an individual person's life in restraining them and hopefully being a demotivator, a deterrent from certain things. But they don't change the inner, right? And so laws are important. They're helpful, but they're not ultimate. They're not transformative. And I appreciate the point that experience that, that rules may restrain me like a handcuff, but they don't like change me from from within, and that's probably been true in your own life. And I'm grateful for the things that he was an impetus for in our nation, but even he knew the limits of those things, that the law would never really change a person, it would never ultimately change a society. And what he's describing there is not just true for Americans, it's not just true regarding racism, right? It's true about all human beings and about all types of sin. Right? That no law actually changes anyone. It, it doesn't transform us about any subject. It doesn't root out any vice. It doesn't root out any fleshliness in us. It may restrain us. It doesn't change us. The law is, it's impossible for the law to change people. But thankfully, what we're going to see in today's text is that even the law of God doesn't ultimately change people, but there is something and someone even, I would say, who can and does change people. Uh, and we're going to see from this text some of the, the limit of the Old Testament law of, that God even himself gave. And we're going to see what God has done in giving a new covenant, a new way of dealing with people, changing people, the ways that he has even changed many, many of us. So we're going to be in Hebrews 7 today. If you've not been with us before, we typically just go through books of the Bible, Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. Uh, we take breaks sometimes for holidays or special occasions. But 
We've been going through this book uh, for a few months, and we jumped back into it last Sunday in kind of the deep end of the pool where we were talking about uh, this man, Melchizedek. And we're going to continue the conversation this morning, but I wanted to pause for a moment before we read this actual text to make sure uh, we know kind of the flow of where we are in the letter, what's being said, why it's being said. So this letter that we call Hebrews was written to, within a few centuries of when Jesus actually was crucified and raised from the dead, very early on in the history of the church. We don't know who wrote it exactly, but we in general know who it was written to, that we can at least discern that it was written to Christians who were Jewish by heritage, uh, people who had probably grown up ethnically Jewish, hearing the Old Testament law, going to their priests, going to synagogues, seeing sacrifices made, hearing the Torah and the prophets and all these things. It was written to Hebrews. That's why we call it that. Uh, but what in particular was going on for them and what prompted the letter, as best as we can tell, is that some of these early Jewish Christians were being tempted to, as persecution arose and opposition arose and things got taken from them and people even got taken from them, they were tempted to go back to the old, what they felt like was safe footing and safe ground of Old Testament law and Old Testament practice. And the author of Hebrews, again, again, is calling them to not do that, to stay focused, to run the race before you, like to keep going in faith in Christ and to never go back to those old ways, to go back to the priests, to go back to the law. Uh, and in chapter 7, he introduced this subject of Melchizedek, this man I even referred to earlier this morning. Uh, but Melchizedek, this is what we did last week, and I'm not going to rehash all of it, but last week what we did was we looked back at the two texts, there's only two of them, and the whole Old Testament where Melchizedek is mentioned. Uh, we looked at Genesis 14, where there's one little paragraph where Melchizedek, this man of mystery, this priest and king, met Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, and where he blessed Abraham, and Abraham gave him a tithe. And so the author we saw in Hebrews 7 was saying, unquestionably, Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And by extension, he was greater than Abraham's descendants, all the priests that you respect so much. Melchizedek was greater than him. Uh, but then we also looked at a second text, and we just kind of had a minute to look at it, uh, but a, a text in the book of Psalms, Psalm 110, verse 4. And that was a psalm written about 1,000 B.C., but it was written by King David once the Levitical priesthood, the, the actual priests that the Israelites were used to, it was up and running, had been for centuries. King David wrote this in Psalm 110, verse 4. He said, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And he's, it's like David's overhearing God speak to the Messiah and him say to the Messiah this, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, that would have not. That would have been surprising for people to hear. What? Like all our priests are Levites, but David is saying there's going to be this priest. This Messiah is going to be a priest, like Melchizedek, that guy back in Genesis 14. And so this morning, as we get back into Hebrews, and we're going to start in verse 11 of chapter 7, I would suggest to you that what we're about to read. Whoever wrote Hebrews, I think this section we're about to read is kind of like a mini sermon on that verse from Psalm 110. Like that verse where he, because the, the author of Hebrews has already referenced that verse a few times in this letter, and he's going to do it again. He's going to direct quote it even here. That verse, Psalm 110, verse 4, where David had said, God said to the Messiah, you're a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It's like he's going to flesh out and he's going to zero in even on particular words from that verse 
and try to draw out the importance of it to the original readers of his day in Hebrews chapter 7. So uh, all that as backstory, hopefully that'll help at least a little bit as we jump into the middle of this letter. Uh, I want to read for you Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, and I'm going to go all the way down to verse 22. This is what the author of Hebrews wrote. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law... What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This is the word of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. I want to summarize this text and the message for you this morning this way, and then I'll unpack and show you where we see this uh, in the text. But I want to summarize it this way, and if you're a note-taking person, you could, could write this down that the perfection that was impossible via the Levites and the law is inevitable via Christ and his covenant. So say that again. The perfection that was impossible via the Levites and the law is inevitable via Christ and his covenant. And so I want to unpack this text under two headings. One's going to be impossibility, and the other's going to be inevitability. And I want to show you how the author is showing both of those things to them, and the Spirit should, I hope, show us both of those things for us today. So let's start with the impossibility part. Uh, this you really see primarily, although it appears kind of later in the second half of the text, it especially appears in that first paragraph, verses 11 to 14. Uh, the author, he, he's going to zero in in this whole text on a few words from Psalm 110, verse 4. Like I said before, I think in this first paragraph, it's like he's meditating. It's like he's riffing on that word from Psalm 110, 4 of Melchizedek. Uh, why a priest like Melchizedek? Why, why did David say that? Why did he hear God say that priest is going to come like Melchizedek and not like Levi, not like Aaron? I think that's what, like, what he's doing in this first paragraph is meditating upon that word. Uh, one of the professors from the seminary I went to, he was talking about this text, this whole text of Scripture today, and he said, believing that it was going back to Psalm 110, verse 4, he said, virtually every word in that verse, Psalm 110, 4, 
is ransacked for its significance here in today's text. And so I think the first word that whoever wrote this is zeroing in on is Melchizedek. Why Melchizedek? Why not a priest like Aaron? And so he starts in today's text with a rhetorical question, right? In verse 11, he starts with this rhetorical question where he's saying that he's essentially communicating with that question. Perfection was not possible through the priests. Perfection was never possible through the law. And he asks it rhetorically. He says, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to order after the order of Melchizedek? So he, he's saying in that question, if you're tracking along, perfection is not possible via the Levites. It's not possible via the law. That's why David forecasted this priest who was going to be different, was because perfection actually could not come. And this is important for us because, I hope you understand what I mean when I say this, we need perfection. Like there's different texts I could point you to if we were preaching different texts, but read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you must be perfect. Right? Some people like to go to the Sermon on the Mount for its moral lessons. Read that part where Jesus says you have to be perfect. Like we, we know this intuitively. We know I was made for perfection. I was made for fullness. I was made for wholeness, for living for God. But I don't do it. Like I am broken. I am sinful. And we, but we know we need to be perfected. We know we need improvement. We know we need to receive that glory. But what he's pointing out in this text is, that is impossible. That perfection that we were made for, that we need if we're going to be presented rightly before God, cannot come through the law. It could never come through the priests. It was never intended to. It was impossible for them to actually bring that perfection about. In ancient Israelites or in modern Americans, the law will not produce perfection. It cannot produce perfection. Right? And so that's why he starts with that question. He's saying the reason David forecasted a Melchizedekian priest is because the Levitical ones couldn't actually perfect you, that they couldn't do what is needed to be done. And so that's verse 11. When you get to verse 12, this is important. It's an important move in the thought and the logic of whoever's writing Hebrews. In verse 12, he ties together the priesthood and the whole law system. He's saying that they're a joint deal, right? That you can't just get a new priesthood and keep the same old law, right? He's saying if a new priesthood is going to arise, if a new priesthood has arisen, he's saying that means something about the whole law system, right? He says in verse 12, when, he just says as a matter of fact, when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily, like it's not even optional, there is, there will be always a change in the law as well. They go together. Like husband and wife become one flesh, right? And we're not to separate. He's saying that the, the law and the priesthood are intertwined. You cannot pull them apart. And if God is saying through David that there's going to be a new priesthood, that means something then about the whole law as well. Uh, that, that you can't just remove the one and keep the other. Like you can't take the Levitical priests away and keep the whole lost system. He's saying they're, they're a joint deal, right? And this is instructive to us because it shows us that the weakness was not just in the priests, but in the whole law. 
right? Like that it wasn't just that there were these flaws in these men who were serving as priests, but the whole law system could not produce perfection. It's not as if if they just somehow got better guys to serve as priests, that somehow they would actually be able to perfect people, right? They had had centuries and centuries and centuries and all sorts of priests, and the fact that none of them were actually perfecting people starts to show it's more than just a problem of the priests, that the law itself cannot do that. The whole law system can't produce perfection. I was trying to think of an illustration of this. I know almost nothing about fixing cars, okay? But one thing I can at least know is you could get the greatest mechanic in the world, like whoever that would be. You could sign them up, pay them however much you want. If you don't give them the right tools, the car's not getting fixed, right? Like you, they could know everything. They could, they could be the perfect, like have all the experience, all the knowledge. If they don't actually have the right tools, the car won't be perfected. It won't be fixed, right? And the same is true in the much more important matters of our souls and our, our being as people, that no matter what priest they would have lined up and given them the Mosaic law and said, here, try to perfect people, they wouldn't have been able to do it. Like that's not what the law was intended to do. The law was never intended to actually perfect people. That's not what God gave it for, okay? And so verse 12, he binds these together, the priesthood and the law, and he says, if you can't have one without the other, like they either both stay or they both go. And that's super important for us to know because as he gets to verse 13 and 14, he's making it very clear, a new priesthood has actually started, has actually begun because he's referencing the lineage of Jesus. The one that Psalm 10, 4 was pointing to was Jesus. And he's trying to point out that God arranged the whole story of sending Jesus very particularly so that Jesus did not descend biologically from the line of priests, right? He wasn't from the line of Aaron. He wasn't from the line of Levi. The tribe that he came from was a totally different tribe, this tribe of Judah. We read that at Christmas every year, right? Read the genealogies of Jesus. You go back far enough, you don't see Levi, you see Judah, right? Jesus is from a different line about whom the author says nothing in the Old Testament said anything about priests coming from Judah. In the Old Covenant, priests were from the tribe of Levi, and that, that was who they were. But God has ordained the story of Christ in such a way, even by his own genetics, by his own family line, to show he is this different kind of priest. He, he's not like the Levitical priest. He's not like the, the priests who were descended from Aaron. He is a fully different kind of priest. And what that shows us is God was not, in the sending of the Messiah, just trying to improve the Levitical priesthood. He was trying to replace it. Not trying. He was replacing it. Right? It's not, he wasn't just producing a better version 2.0 of the Levitical priest. He was giving an entirely different kind of priest who had, had no basis in the law of the Old Testament, uh, but was nonetheless a true priest of the Most High God, his son, Jesus. And so the law and the priesthood, it was impossible for them to perfect anything or anyone. And I want us to feel the weight of that this morning. I, I want to, to press down, if you have never felt this before, I want to, to press down any hope you have in your heart of being perfected before God through moral law keeping. You cannot, you must be perfect. Jesus said that. 
You, I cannot become perfect. We can't be perfected just by keeping God's law. You cannot be perfected even by the prayers of someone like me or the prayers of someone like your parents or people you respect. There is no other human being on this earth right now who can bring you perfection that you need so desperately before God. We must feel our bankruptcy. We must feel our weakness internally and even in the systems of morality and ethics. We must feel that. If we're going to be aimed at the place and the person we can find perfection, it's to rid ourselves of any idea that we can find it in anyone else or any other religious system. There are countless religions. I was just talking to a young man who's grown up in our church this morning who's here who was just in a different nation uh, over the uh, last month as part of a trip uh, for his college. And he was saying just that when he went to this nation, he saw religious practices of the people there, that they were sincere, that they knew internally their need for perfection. They knew their need of cleansing, but they're trying to find it in going into a river and being cleansed. They're trying to find it in the intercession of different priests who are operating in their religious system, and they're trying to achieve that perfection. They're trying to find it in what they can do or who they can appeal to on this earth. And we often do the same thing. We may not be going into rivers and being fooled into that, but we conjure up ideas in our culture in our day that somehow I can actually achieve perfection myself. That I can, by finding the right moral code, by finding the right values, by finding the right way of life, I can actually become perfected and be acceptable to God. And this text will show you, you cannot... You cannot be perfected by keeping any law. If the law of God, like that, what he's saying is weak and powerless here, is law given by God. Like divinely inspired law, he's saying that could not perfect you. It cannot perfect you. So what on earth possesses us to think, well, my moral code or my religious system that, that I've concocted up or these wise people who've come before me have concocted up, what on earth makes us think living that out, going through those rituals is going to perfect me? If a God-inspired law and God-inspired priest could not perfect, then nothing on this earth, no religious system, no religious guru, leader, teacher, intercessor for you can bring you perfection. And I want you to feel the weight of that to rid yourself of any other idea of coming before God and being perfected by law-keeping. That cannot happen. It's not just difficult, it is impossible. It will not happen. That is the bad news from this text, uh, is that it is impossible to be perfected by the law. But this text has much better news for you. It has good news for you and for me as well, because God has provided a way of perfection. God has provided a means by which we can receive that perfection that we need so desperately. And so if the first paragraph was the, the author kind of riffing on that word Melchizedek, why a priest like Melchizedek and not uh, like Levi from Psalm 110.4, the last half of today's text from 15 down through 22, it's like the author is kind of riffing or meditating back from that verse on two other words, the, ver the words forever and the word sworn, uh, that he's, he's really digging into those words from Psalm 110, verse 4. And what he's going to help us see, and I'll show you from these texts, is that uh, what was impossible with the Levites and the law is now inevitable through Christ and his covenant. That if we're connected with Christ, if we're part of this new covenant that God has established, 
Perfection is going to be. It is happening in you even right now if you're united with Christ. And so uh, even what was impossible is, going to, is now inevitable. I would say it maybe even this way. What was unattainable through the law is now unassailable in Christ. Right? You couldn't get it no matter how hard you tried through the law. But now no matter how much people try to take it away from you, they cannot take it from you if you're united with Christ. And so the, in, as he starts into 15 in those few verses, I think he's really zeroing in on the word forever. I tried to even show it in how I read verse 17 where we would put the emphasis, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he, he's, what David was forecasting, what he heard God saying to the Messiah, uh, has now actually happened in the arrival of Jesus, right? And what he's pointing out in verse 15 and 16 is that as Jesus was made the great high priest, the great high priest of heaven even, he became that priest not because of who his dad was, not because of who his great, 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 great grandfather was the way that the reason God put him into that role was he says, verse 16, was because of the power of an indestructible life. That was the basis. That was the, the means and the reason by which God made this Jesus the high priest of heaven. It wasn't because of his lineage. It wasn't because of his genetics. It was because now, after the cross, God raised him up from the dead never to die again. He is indestructible now, has a life that cannot, will not ever be taken from him. And so the author believes, and he's saying to us, that is why David said that God told the Messiah, you're a priest forever. The shelf life of Levitical priests was, I don't know how long it would be. Maybe they would at best serve like 50 years, something like that. By the time they were of age to serve as a priest, and if they had long life in that day, they would probably serve like five decades max. That was their shelf life as a priest. There were no priests who served forever. It may have felt like forever to some people. It was not forever. But David says this priest is going to be priest forever. He's going to be priest permanently. And that's exactly what we see happen when Jesus comes, right? And when he's raised from the dead, this finally makes sense. A priest who serves forever, who intercedes forever for God's people. And this is so important for us because uh, the Levitical priests, their, their, their span of service would have been like a drop in the bucket in human history, right? A flash in the pan. They're here. They're gone. Not so with Jesus. Like Jesus, when he was raised in the tomb that Sunday morning, became priest forever. Like millions of years from now, he will still be the high priest of heaven. Like Jesus is and will always be the, pre the high priest of heaven who mediates for God's people, who, who brings us to God. He is a priest who serves forever. And so that's hugely significant to the author of Hebrews. He wants them to see and us to see this priest is different. Like he will never stop being your priest. You don't need to even be nervous that he's going to go away. He will today, tomorrow, next year, next decade, next millennium. He will always and ever be the high priest of heaven who intercedes for you and stands up for you. But this has implications. This arrival of this new kind of priest has implications for those old priests, right? And the old law system. That's what he gets at in verses 18 and 19. He says, on the one hand, a, a former commandment, talking about the law and everything about priests in the Old Testament, he says, that former commandment, hear this, is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. That is a huge statement. 
that in the arrival of Jesus, remember priesthood and law are tied together, when this new priest has come, he, and he replaces the Levitical priests, that whole law system, in large part, is being replaced. It, it's being done away with, at least in this, operating in the same way. It, it no longer operates the same way with God's people that it used to. It's still in force. It's still in the sense of being the word of God and giving direction, giving us knowledge, giving us guidance about how to live. But we are no longer with this new priest in place under this old law system. Uh, the, the two have been replaced. They've been done away with. He says they've been set aside even because of their weak, weakness and uselessness. And that setting aside, I think the author of Hebrews would want us to know, it's not just a setting aside to someday pick it back up again, right? Like sometimes we set something aside and we put it in our garage. I may need this someday or whatever. Like we set something aside and we think, oh, I could get it back out. That is not what he's saying here. When he says set aside, it's this word that means more like an annulment, or if you want to use like a big word, like an abrogation, like a, a, a dissolving of a will or something like that. Like it's a doing away with that thing. It is done. It is over. And so this priesthood and this law are set aside there. They're annulled in the coming of a new priest. And he's going to establish a new covenant, a way that he relates to God's people. I appreciate this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Always have to interject a little bit of Spurgeon for us. He was talking about the, the Levitical priests, and I, I love how he said this. He said, they were candles for the darkness, like they had a purpose. They were candles for the darkness, but the sun was to rise, and then they would not be needed. That is a good word, that they served a purpose. They helped us get a little glimpse of our sin, help us see how eventually a priest would intercede for us, but they didn't actually perfect anything. They didn't shine into the whole world like the sun does, but when Christ came, the true light has now come into the world, right? And that need, when the sun's out, you don't need, go take a candle outside, you don't need it. <laughs> like, what purpose does it serve? It no longer serves a purpose. You can blow it out. You don't need it in the same way any longer. So God sets aside this law with the coming of a new priest, but he didn't just leave a vacuum, right? It's not that he just pulled down the Old Testament law and just let, that's it, that, that's the whole story. He also says that he introduced a better hope, right, in verse 19. So he set aside the former commandment, but verse 19 says he introduces a better hope through Jesus, that this new priest, this new way of interacting with people provides a better hope, and he says, through, through that hope, we draw near to God. That is good news for us. If the law, had, it was impossible for the law to perfect people and bring them to God, Jesus is the one who actually does that. He is the one by his suffering upon the cross has dealt with our sin, has suffered and borne the judgment of God so we might be forgiven. But he is also as the one who's been raised from the dead, the one who invites us to say, I'm with the Father now, come to me. You can be with us. Like we were glad to receive you. You can draw near to me. You are sinners, yes, but I have suffered for those sins. And if you repent and trust in me, you can come. Gladly come to us, fearlessly come to us because I have suffered in your place. And that is good news for us that God didn't just tear down the law and tear down the priest, but he gave us a priest and established a new covenant, a new way that we can deal with God, where we can actually draw near to him through repentance and through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And that is good, good news to us. But that drawing near to God is not a work that you're perfecting yourself by. 
right? It's like an anti-work. It's recognizing I've got nothing to bring to you, God, except my sin. Like I, I cannot perfect myself. I have done nothing but wrong you. Please forgive me. It, it, like falling upon the mercy of God is an anti-work. It's not a new system by which you can perfect yourself. It's saying you can only come to God on terms of what Jesus has done for you, not what you can do for him. And that is good news to us because he has done everything necessary to bring us to God. So he gives us a better hope, a sure hope. But the question may linger in our minds of could God change his mind again? Could he change his terms again? Like so he's, he had this old covenant, he had these Levitical priests, but now he has instituted a new priest, Jesus, and this new covenant is God going to change his mind again? Like, is he going to, like, pull the rug out from us or give some new way of interacting with him like he did before? And that's where, and I'll end mostly with this. Uh, the, in the last few verses, the author is really zeroing in back in Psalm 110, verse 4, on the word sworn. He, he's saying what David overheard God saying to the Messiah wasn't just, you're a priest forever, but what David heard and what he articulated in Psalm 110 was that God the Father swore. God swore and said he would not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so David knew, and he wanted us to know, and the author of Hebrews would want us to know, God is never, ever, ever going to change his mind any further. He didn't change his mind at the first place. He knew what he was going to do. But he is never going to change the terms again. He, he is never, he's not going to institute covenant 3.0, right? He, he introduces a new covenant through the person of Jesus, but that is the full and final covenant. That is the way now and forever that you can relate to God, that you can draw near to God is through Jesus. And God has told you, I'm not going to change my mind. This is my son. This is the way you draw near to me. Draw near to me. And you can with confidence step foot toward God. You can approach God knowing God's not going to change his mind. God is not going to change the terms on you. He has told you how to draw near to him. He has sworn it. And if God swears something, and on top of that says, I will not change my mind, you can take that to the eternal bank, right? That he will forgive if you come to him in repentance and faith. He will not turn you away. That is good news. And I am so grateful for how this text ends. It says that we don't just have a guarantee of a better covenant. It says we have a guarantor of a better covenant, right? That we have the word of God that has been preached to us, that's been proclaimed to us of forgiveness of sin. But more than that, we have a human being on the throne of heaven, a resurrected, indestructible human being who has died for us, is on the throne of heaven at the right hand of God right now as a guarantor for us. We don't just have God's word, we have his son, like we have a person who has done all the work necessary and who's interceding for us now and forever. We have a guarantor of a better covenant. What great hope we possess, right? We have a better hope is like an understatement. We have the greatest hope. We have certainty. If we're trusting in Christ and united with him by faith, we have certainty that God has received us that God is perfecting us, that God someday will raise us up to reign with his son for all time. That is good news, that perfection, if we're united with Jesus, hear this, perfect, the perfection you need is not just possible, it's inevitable. Like, he didn't just open a door for you and say, now you gotta do the rest and walk through. He purchased every part of your perfection. He, he purchased at the cross, he purchased, if you're one of his people, the change of heart that has taken place in you. 
He purchased the gift of the Holy Spirit to you. He purchased the perseverance of faith uh, that you will live out in your life. He purchased your resurrection uh, when he went to the cross. He, he purchased his return. He bought all of it by his sacrifice at the cross. So it is a certainty if you're united with him that you will be perfected, that you are being perfected even right now. And that is good news. That is not just possible, but it is inevitable if you're united with Christ. I want to end with this quote. Uh, I've seen variations of this quote attributed to different people. Um, I think I may have even attributed some variation of this to other people before, like John Bunyan, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said something similar to this. But there's a little poem. It's just four lines uh, from an evangelist named John Berridge, uh, where he was uh, trying to articulate in a succinct way the difference between the law of God and its weakness, that it's impossible to be perfected through it, and the inevitability that when I have Jesus, when I have the good news of Jesus, I will become who God has made me to be. And I so love this. Uh, he said this. He's, it's like he's imagining, his name was John, so remember that. He said this. He said, Run, John, and work. The law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and lends me wings. That is beautiful. Uh, because what he's trying to say in a poetic way is the law of God, even the law of God, the law that came from God will tell me to do this and to do this and to not do that and to stop doing this. And when I have done this, I need to go to the priest and have him atone for me and I need to bring these offerings and I need to do and do and do and do. But even the law of God doesn't give me feet and hands to actually do it with a, a, a pure heart, right? Like I'm doing it outwardly, but I'm not changed inwardly. But he says there's a sweeter news that the gospel brings, the good news of Jesus brings to us, that this news that I don't have to do things to get God to love me. I don't have to do things to get God's forgiveness. He has done all that is necessary for me in the sending of Christ. And that is good news that actually melts the heart of stone within me. To be rid of any idea that I can please God, but to know that Christ pleases God and he has suffered for me. That's what actually gives me wings to fly. Not just to run and work hard, but to fly and soar and become the person that God made me to be. Because I'm confident of his love. I'm confident of his favor. Not because of what I've done for him, but because of what Christ has done for me. And so if you're a person in this room who... You think in your relationship with God of just the law. You think of doing, 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 doing. I want you this morning to know you cannot, will not be perfected down that path. God this morning is pointing you to the cross of his son who suffered for you and was raised for you. And he's saying, I have given a new covenant. I've given you a better way to relate to me. And it's through my son. Find forgiveness in him. Find perfection in him. I freely, fully offer it to you through Christ. And so I pray that we will do that this morning, that we will be part of that new covenant, that we will repent and believe in his son, whether for the first time or the thousandth time, that we would uh, enjoy being part of that covenant.